Russia continues its daily bombing of Ukrainian cities, killing innocent civilians, including kids. But Russian cities themselves are no longer safe, as last week even Moscow witnessed a drone attack of no clear origin. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. This is our weekly overview of major events and trends in and around Ukraine during the past week, from May 30th until June 5th, 2023. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I am a Ukrainian philosopher and the chief editor of Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. In this episode I am joined by Maxim Panchenko, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World, to discuss seven key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Hello, Maxim. Thank you so much for joining this episode. So let's talk about the key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week. We are talking about the week of 29th of May until the 5th of June. What are, in your opinion, the key events uh, during this week? Well, first of all, Russia has continued its uh, shellings of Ukraine almost every night, and uh, that has even intensified, so we'll talk about that. Uh, there have also been developments, reciprocal, so to say, developments. Uh, there have been some shellings of uh, Moscow's, drone, Moscow, drone attacks, etc., Uh, we'll look into that. Uh, regarding the international plane, Ukraine is trying to establish a, or expand rather a patriot uh, system coalition uh, and uh, also uh, regarding the, the international plane, there is some further developments with regard to China's diplomacy around Ukraine, which is not very pleasant to Ukraine reportedly. Uh, On the other hand, the U.S. has announced a new aid package to uh, Ukraine in the run-up to the counteroffensive. And uh, finally, uh, but not least, so to say, there has been another raid of anti-Putin Russian troops from the territory of Ukraine to the territory of Russia. So we'll discuss how that has impacted the entire situation in the front lines. So let's start with the most pressing, with the most uh, uh, dramatic element of it, uh, of the events right now. Russia continues to shell uh, Ukrainian cities very, very uh, frequently, practically uh, every day. And Kyiv is under attack practically every day. But not only Kyiv, we have seen attacks on Dnipro, we have seen attacks on, uh, on some smaller cities. Now, what can you tell? Uh, us about this? Well, indeed, as you said, uh, these assaults happen uh, almost every night. And I've got an impression that Russia is trying to exhaust our air defense systems because uh, starting with 28th or 29th of May, uh, these attacks have been not only daily because they had, they had been almost daily since the start of May, but they also had become more massive, uh, employing 
40 to 50 missiles or drones each night, and not just against Kyiv, but also against big cities, as you said, like Dnipro. Uh, so, uh, and Ukraine has uh, shot down most of them uh, successfully, but at the same time, it needs to be understood that um, many in the, in the majority of those successful events, still there is danger of the debris uh, falling down, uh, of the shot down uh, missiles and uh, drones, and they still are able to kill people, which unfortunately has been the case during this last week of uh, intensified uh, shellings by Russia. Uh, for instance, uh, Ukrainian media have been shook, uh, have, have been shaken by um, by the instances of uh, a couple of days back uh, of this debris falling down in Kyiv and killing several people, I believe, including several children. Uh, and there is another facet to this development because uh, people, this was in the middle of the night and people just did not have enough time to open their, um, their bomb shelters. And that is the problem of its own why that had been not possible to do that on time. But still, it uh, indicates that even when the air defense is uh, working properly, uh, still one not can say that Ukrainians are in um, in safety. So that's the unfortunate and maybe not so obvious facet of uh, of everything. Because when Ukrainian air defense shoots uh, shoots down the missiles, the headline that makes to the media is like, "Hooray! Ukrainians have shot down everything or almost everything." We should not forget that. It would have been even better to prevent Russia from shooting these missiles in the first place, given the, the uh, outcomes it can lead to. Right. Unfortunately, we're talking about this attack on the 1st of June, during which uh, in, in Disnansky, Ryan of Kiev, it's not very, way of, very far away from where my parents live, and it's very close, actually, almost next door to, to the place where the parents of my wife are living. And uh, my wife uh, has spent uh, a lot of her time in childhood and adolescence in this place. Nine-year-old girl uh, has been killed. Her 34-year-old mother and yet another 33-year-old woman. This was happened in Kiev. So Kiev is shelled pro, uh, practically uh, almost every day right now. And as you rightly said, uh, the, uh, the the debris of the rockets are actually really can still endanger endanger people. Uh, we have also, you know, we have also went this week to to Zaporizhia Oblast. You know that Zaporizhia is one of the big industrial towns, cities in Ukraine, and um, the majority of the oblast has is occupied by the russian troops from uh, 70 to 75 percent i think of the oblast is occupied and we went to a, a town called komushovaha and uh, there was also um there was also an attack on the first of june uh attacked by cluster bombs and these cluster bombs killed two people and we went to the place where these people were killed and actually, you cannot see any destruction there. Uh, you cannot see any any dramatic destruction because cluster bombs are very, very, you know, they they just uh, they're sending lots of very small pieces of metal and uh, these small pieces of uh, steel just go to the bodies of people and kill them. 
and we have seen this place with, with still the uh, the pits of blood over the asphalt over the ground so this is happening we have also seen an attack on uh, on on Dnipro. we have also seen an attack on uh, some other uh, other places and this continues unfortunately the problem is that kiev is really uh, really protected by the air defense we we see it uh, both by Ukrainian and by international. But what about other Ukrainian places? What about other t- cities? What about other towns? This is still uh, a big question. Okay, maybe you want to add something on this uh, or go to another topic, Maxim? Well, my only co- uh, comment would be that, uh, in my opinion, the concentration of air defense in Kyiv can be explained by the strategic importance of, of the city, first of all, by the amount of inhabitants, but at the same time, several other cities, as you pointed out, uh, too, are so-called millionaire cities, uh, meaning that more than a million people live there. So, yes, uh, indeed, it would be uh, good to provide air defense them, for them, too. But Kyiv is also one of the centers of uh, defense industry, and the concentration of uh, defense factories here uh, is uh, quite big. And finally, this is only my assumption, but still, as far as I understand, um, Kyiv, uh, the fact that Kyiv has uh, much connection between the banks of the Dnieper River, because the amount of, of bridges that exist in, in Kyiv, they allow for the swift and diversified uh, transition of, uh, of the defense equipment that comes from the West. To, to the eastern bank of Dnipro and, you know, to uh, down to the southeastern part where the, the hostilities are. So I think that the idea here may be to protect those bridges because there are so many of them here to use for those purposes rather than down the, down the river elsewhere in Ukraine. So maybe that's the idea here. But again, that's only my assumption. Well, we have talked about the attack on Dnipro. Actually, it was uh, an attack on the um, on the oblast of Dnipro, and uh, this is a community, uh, the community near Dnipro, uh, Pidhorodnenska uh, community, and uh, tragically, there is also a death of a child. A two-year-old girl has been killed, uh, and. Uh, this is what happened. This happened actually on the 3rd of June. So we have reports about the, the death of children quite regularly. And you know, another place we went in Zaporizhia Oblast also is also related to the death of children. We went to a town called Vilnyansk, and you probably remember those horrible news from November 2022, where the hospital of Vilnyansk was targeted by the Russian missile, and there was a maternity department which was destroyed and uh, the Russian missile killed a boy who had only two days. He was born two days before. His name was Sergei and he was killed by Russian missile. So children are dying, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately is really not the word that should be used. I'm sorry for that. Tragically, unthinkably, inhumanely, children are dying from these Russian attacks. Okay, let's move forward. Uh, Ukraine tries to, of course, prepare the counteroffensive. Um, at the same time, 
we, we don't yet, despite the, the fact that this is already June, we don't say, see yet any massive counteroffensive uh, attacks, but we see preparations, maybe preparations for them. At the same time, something is going on in Russian cities, and in particular in Moscow. Something is going on there. There are drones with no clear origin that are actually flying over Moscow and creating the insecurity situation in which Ukrainians have been living already for uh, over one year uh, from this uh, large-scale invasion. So what can you say about this? What can we say about these drones? Can we say they are, wh- where they come from? What do they produce? What, uh, what they attack? Well, so this attack that you're referring to, it uh, happened on the 30th of uh, May. Uh, it was only a couple of days after the first, well, not the first, but the, the, the first in the biggest array of uh, attacks on Kyiv. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure if this is a coincidence, but uh, Budanov, the head of the military uh, intelligence uh, of Ukraine, said back then that there would be uh, a retaliation for that. Uh, and um, just two days after, there was this attack, a drone attack on Moscow, which Ukraine did not claim responsibility for. It should be admitted. And the information on uh, on this attack is quite uh, different, uh, given the depending on the sources reporting on it, because Russia's defense ministry says that there have been. Uh, five to eight drones attacking Moscow, and uh, while media, Russian media basically, say that uh, the amount of drones uh, reached around 25 to 30 items. Uh, whichever whichever number is the right one, uh, it, I think, can be estimated that not particular damage was done to, to Moscow, to any military facilities in Moscow, etc. Uh, most of them have been... Uh, uh, shut down by Russia's uh, air defense. But the idea here is maybe not even the damage inflicted, but the unprecedented nature of these things. Because, uh, first of all, uh, this amount of drones having succeeded to, uh, well, cross the border if they were Ukrainian, or, at, you know, at least even if launched from the territory of Russia to reach Moscow and to make their way to the city boundaries, because many of them have been shot down already in the city boundaries, this is intimidating for Russians. And um, I cannot say that I um, have come across any instances of outward panic among uh, Moscowitz. But uh, once again, this needs to be, this happening, this drone attack needs to be embedded into a broader picture, because in parallel to what has been happening in Moscow, there have also been developments in the Belgorod Oblast. Um, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but um, the idea here is that the anti-Putin, um, but still Russian forces, have been raiding for the second time Russian territory, and there have been panic uh, panic sentiments there. So, in my opinion, this is even though there has been no explicit damage, material damage, um, or casualties in Moscow, still this contributes in the overall picture to the deteriorating um, uh, deteriorating sentiments. Or how else do I put it in, in Russia? And maybe this will contribute, hopefully, so to the second guessing among Russians, whether they need to continue supporting 
Putin's uh, war in Ukraine. Of course, one should not be naive here. Uh, there is no magical wand that can change uh, things in the snap of the fingers uh, here. But still, this is something. The important thing about this, I think, is really that Russia is vulnerable. Russia is, uh, its its borders are not very well protected. Its borders are closed, including the the situation uh, in the air. Another thing is that these drones attack the most rich uh, districts in Moscow, the so-called the so-called Rublevka, which is which is really a place where the the richest people, including President of Russia himself, his residence in Nova Gorova, uh, is living, as far as I understand. And uh, this is the nature of this attack is. Con- is is very different from the nature of attacks by Russia itself, which attacks residential uh, areas uh, of uh, you know everywhere in Ukraine, including ordinary people in Slovyansk, in Dnipro, in Uman, in Kiev, in in Vinnytsia, in Komushovaha, everywhere else. I rather think that this is kind of a we don't know who produced this attack of drones. Maybe maybe it originates in Moscow itself, in Russia itself. Maybe it originates in among those uh, troops, the, the, those those formations, army formations that are being formed in 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 Russia itself, out of out of Russian citizens. But it is rather a sign that uh, the target of these attacks are the ruling class. The, the elites, the ruling class, the richest people, the decision makers, etc. So let's for let's talk about uh, let's talk about um, these raids, the new raids of the Russian volunteer corps into the Russian territory. What can you say about this? Uh, so indeed, uh, this has been a second happening in the row because a couple of uh, I think around a week or ten days uh, prior. Uh, these units that you have referred to, they have already uh, raided uh, the Belgorod Oblast territory from the territory of Ukraine, but it was more to the northern part of the of the Russian Oblast. Uh, and uh, these days, a couple of days back, uh, these units, uh, the Liberty of Russia and the and the corp that you that you have referred to, they indeed once again have raided the territory of Belgorod Oblast. They have. Um, captured around 10 square kilometers, as far as I read this morning, of the territory of Russia and have turned much more Russian territory into the gray zone, so to say. Uh, And uh, they have advanced, uh, according to some reports, as far as to an approximately 40,000 people uh, town of uh, Shebekino in uh, Belgorod Oblast. So the idea here, of course, is to make Russia to uh, divert its resources from the um, from the uh, front lines in Ukraine, in Ukrainian territory, uh, to the defense of the Russian territory, uh, to the basically to the north, to the northwest of uh, of the pending hostilities in the in the territory of Ukraine, and. Um, as far as I understand, the idea here is that Russia cannot quickly mobilize in a day or two additional resources and equip them uh, to respond to this immediate threat in Belgorod Oblast, which is why they basically do not have any other choice but to withdraw a part of the 
uh, of the resources from the front lines in Ukraine. And from what I hear, this is something that has been happening so far. Uh, and uh, that way, this, of course, is uh, should be perceived as part of the picture of the preparations for the counteroffensive of Ukraine. Uh, because, of course, less uh, less manpower and less equipment on the Russian side of the front line will contribute to potential Ukrainian success in the counteroffensive at whichever territory it can, it can happen. So we'll have to see how the how the situation develops. But uh, the logic says that basically um, Ukraine and this anti-Putin Russian forces are going to continue uh, to um, to raid the territory of Russia in not in order to um, capture some territory, but rather not to not to leave uh, Russian forces standing still there, but you know needing to build up their capacities elsewhere in the Russian territory. Yes, and uh, <clears throat> this is probably a good tactics because we have seen from the <clears throat> military parrot on the 9th of May in Moscow that there is not so many troops in Moscow to show on a military parade and uh, because many of them are really on the front line. So maybe it's a good good thing you know, looking for the vulnerabilities of Russian defense. Let's move forward and come back a little bit to the, to the question of uh, missile attacks and drone attacks over Kyiv. Um, as you said, Ukraine had talks regarding the possible creation of a Patriot coalition because Ukraine needs more air defense, obviously uh, in line with this, in the context of this attack. What can you say about this? Well, the news break about these negotiations that President Zelensky had with the Western countries about the Petro system, systems, it has been quite formal. So the news itself is not uh, very, uh, very extensive. Uh, visiting as an international summit a couple of days back in Moldova, President Zelensky said that he had talks with the several Western countries, including the Netherlands, including Denmark, Germany, um, about uh, the possible delivery of more Patriot systems to, to, to Ukraine. And uh, he also noted that uh, apart from these several countries that have been specifically designated, he generally characterized this, the, the negotiations as the ones with the countries that have already been involved in the creation of the F-16 coalition. So basically, we're trying to expand that to to those countries that we already are cooperating with. Um, I think that the idea here is that um, Patriot system, uh, the Patriot system has become, uh, again, from what is available from the publicly available information, um, it is the only system that can be used against the ballistic missiles that Russia has. Uh, we have had other air defense systems, again, from the partners, from our Western partners that helped us with the cruise missiles, like, for instance, the German IRSTs uh, and etc. But um, when it comes to the ballistic missiles, uh, which Russia has been employing more and more often, uh, we only have the Petra systems. And... As we had mentioned previously in our conversation, the Patriots, first of all, only have two Patriot systems as of now, and uh, they are, at least one of them is in Kyiv, and there are so, other, so many other frontline cities 
that need protection. For instance, Zaporizhia, because of its proximity to the front lines, uh, it is, um, from what I hear, it uh, is mostly being shelled by ballistic missiles of the S-300 uh, uh, complexes. Uh, that Russia has and that are, that are stationed near the front lines. So uh, and and the lack of delivery of those uh, of those missiles to Zaporizhia, which is a, a huge city, especially after the IDPs um, traveling there from the southern the occupied southern parts of Ukraine, uh, the inhabitant the number of inhabitants there has increased. So this is why we need uh, more Petra systems. And my guess is for cities closer to the front lines to Kharkiv, to Zaporizhia, to Dnipro, I think also to Kharkiv, because it is being shot every day from across the Dnieper River. So my guess would be that. You mean Zaporizhia across, uh, you mean Kherson, not Kharkiv from across uh, the Dnieper? Kherson, yes, Kherson, of course, of course. We actually went to Zaporizhia this week, and uh, I can confirm that this is a really a frontline city, uh, 40 kilometers from the Russian troops, on some places 30 kilometers from the Russian troops. And uh, I would say that compared to other pre-front cities that we have visited, especially in eastern Ukraine, like Kramatorsk uh, or Slovyansk, Zaporizhia looks much more like a peace, a peaceful city, like, like much more like a civilian city. And frankly speaking, it's not being shelled that regularly than Kramatorsk or Slavyansk or, or other cities. So there is lots of peaceful life. There are children on the streets. People are swimming in Dnipro River. So, and there is sun because it is it is to the south. So it is really very, 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 how to say it, humanely interesting and important to see that city which is living very close to the front line, but actually trying to live uh, its normal life. Uh, as about uh, S-300, it's really uh, became a tool for Russians to attack Ukraine. And uh, these are rockets, mostly uh, air defense rockets, which Russia turns into a uh, land-to-land rockets. And they are very unprecise. So when they when they shell with S three hundred, they're really very unprecise. We see uh, this shelling on primarily in Slovyansk, Kramatorsk, less so on Kharkiv. I don't know if Patriots can down it actually because they fly very very fast. They actually can reach you in thirty seconds. So so this is a question which we will ask probably a military. Uh, military experts, but really this S-300 became one of the tools of Russian attacks. And don't forget that cities like Zaporizhia are actually accessible, also accessible by long-range artillery, because it's it's only 30 kilometers from the front line. Okay, let's, let's move forward, and there is also a news that you mentioned that the U.S. announced a new aid package to Ukraine, which consists primarily of Patriot missiles for Patriot and uh, artillery ammunition, including for HIMARS. Can you elaborate on that? Well, it's just that the interpretation of this uh, specific uh, aid package is that uh, again, once again, this is the last brushes in the um, preparation of of the counteroffensive because uh, the air defense is not something uh, that you only uh, need uh, in big cities to protect them uh, against 
night night air raids, etc. But this is also something that is needed very much during an offensive uh, along the front lines, uh, because Russia and this has been the discussion in um, you know in, in, in Ukraine for some weeks already that Ukraine's vulnerability in the upcoming uh, counteroffensive would be that Russia uh, would probably try to fight back with uh, a very strong aviation component. They will try to stop Ukrainian offensive, counteroffensive, with airstrikes uh, against troops and inflicting the maximum casualties possible in order to stop Ukraine. So the experts agree that it would be the key of Russia's uh, counter uh, tactics. Uh, so in as far as I understand, uh, this is why Ukraine is trying to enhance its capacities in this particular uh, in this particular sector, it wants to feel more um, defended, more protected, uh, and for its troops to be more defended when counter-offensive uh, counter uh, in, in the south and uh, in the east. So that, that would be my guess. guess. And of course, there is this um, artillery ammunition thing, the HIMARS that have primarily been um, useful for Ukraine as a longer range uh, missiles, not very long range, but longer than Ukrainian, Ukrainians had previously. Uh, and this has been useful in targeting the uh, command stations uh, of uh, Russians across, uh, uh, across the front line and also the arms uh, depots uh, along the front lines. So this again is, um, is important for the bigger operational depth and for reaching that depth by Ukrainians during the counteroffensive. So this can be indeed embedded into the logic of what Ukraine is presumably preparing for uh, for the counteroffensive. Right, if, of course, because the counteroffensive needs uh, something, the support from the air. And uh, unfortunately, we still don't have the F-16 fighter jets. Mm, we don't know where... They will be operational, probably not in this summer, not during the summer. Uh, and therefore, Ukraine is here a, a bit vulnerable. So it needs, it needs, of course, for counteroffensive, it needs domination in this kind. Therefore, air defense is at least uh, an important element uh, in this. Okay, uh, let's move to the question of marine force. You say that Ukraine is set to fortify its marine force uh, by establishing an entire marine corps. Why is it important, and what can you say about this? Well, it is. Uh, it once again can be um, can be embedded into the topic of the counteroffensive, uh, because. I think a week or ten uh, or ten days back, President Zelensky said that uh, Ukraine was going to establish the Marine Corps <coughs> to expand the Marine troops into a uh, Marine Corps, uh, and uh, later this topic was elaborated by the by the leaders of uh, the Ukrainian Navy. Navy, and uh, indeed this has much to do with the counteroffensive uh, because the territory that Ukraine would be regaining uh, would uh, be uh, would boast a very lengthy coastline that would have to be protected 
uh, by uh, Ukrainian army, by Ukrainian troops, uh, by Marine Corps in this particular case. Uh, because if we look at which territories are still under occupation, that would be the coastlines of the majority of the Kherson Oblast, uh, the entirety of the coastline of the Zaporizhia Oblast, and the entirety of the coastline of the uh, Donetsk Oblast. And once Ukrainian um, troops reach, and if and once uh, Ukrainian troops reach all that uh, uh, all that length of the Ukrainian coastline, they would uh, face the threat from Russian troops from across the Azov Sea, for instance, from the Crimean coastline, from the uh, Krasnodar region, if I'm not mistaken, the Rostov-Nadonu region in Russia. So that would be... Um, so those troops is something that Ukraine needs to be stationed there and to constantly protect the, the shores. And one specific... Um, issue that confirms the importance of this is that uh, specifically the leadership of the Navy said that we are not going to wait until the end of the war uh, because this is not just simply a reform that Ukrainian uh, armed forces need to undergo, that we thought that it would be good in the future to establish the Marine Corps. This is something that we need already now. We need it already for the counteroffensive and for holding on the territory that we're going to retake. So basically, that's the idea here. And uh, of course, uh, they're going to be, again, from what has been said by the leadership, they're going to be equipped with much of the equipment that we're um, receiving from the West. So fingers crossed, this is going to be something, a, a major development and once again, a major addition to, to the counteroffensive. Right. And the last topic of this episode is the diplomatic topic, and it involves China, because we we hear the calls from the China Special Envoy to Russian-Ukraine war, Li Hui, uh, which kind of a war is Ukraine? Why is it so? Uh, it is so that uh, there basically are mixed signals about what the special envoy is striving to achieve because in the latest week uh, he or around a week ago he had um, a tour across Europe reportedly uh, during which he was talking to European leaders uh, about the war in Ukraine Russia's war in Ukraine and the ways to end it and there have as far as I understand there has been no public information no public presentation for the press, for instance, uh, in the wake of this uh, tour, either by the European side or by the Chinese side. But there have been reports by the Wall Street Journal that uh, they had some insights about the contents of this visit of the special envoy uh, to Europe. And according to those insights, uh, the special envoy um, wanted that European leaders pressurize Ukraine into agreeing to a ceasefire in the, along the front line, along the line of uh, of the conflict that already is in Ukraine, and to start negotiating and and the and start negotiation negotiating the peace and the point uh, through which Europeans would, in the eyes of the Chinese uh, envoy, be pressurizing Ukraine would be the uh, stopping of arms delivery deliveries to Ukraine by its uh, Western uh, partners. So basically, this is something that very much plays into the hands of the Russian view of uh, what needs to be done at this stage of the war, because Russia craves nothing more than a ceasefire now in order to regroup, in order to be able to uh, organize 
another offensive, another big round of war, even if it doesn't happen immediately, even if it takes a couple of years to be prepared. So basically, Russia is now trying to do something similar to what has been in 2015-2016, when the initial stage of this war that started in 2014, uh, it basically froze. And it was relaunched on a bigger scale in 2022. The catch here is, however, that uh, Ukraine's foreign minister, um, he had this in, in a in a stream on his social media. He said that he had contacted all those European leaders that uh, the special envoy of China had reportedly talked to, and all of them uh, assured him that these issues that the Wall Street Journal had detailed had not been discussed that the basically that uh, the chinese envoy had not propounded those kind of uh, kinds of uh, propositions of uh, suggestions as to the ceasefire in ukraine so as i said the signals are mixed here but at the same time this is not the first time that uh, the signals make it to the public uh, to the public ear uh, and there is no smoke without fire so i think we can um the least we can do is to uh, keep a close eye on the further diplomacy of China because it seems that this is a consistent a consistent pattern. China is indeed trying to uh, help Russia in uh, pro- promoting its vision of the war, uh, of how the war should end. So, and this is why the West needs to remain vigilant in, and not to give in. Uh, because if this is already happening on this high of a level, on the on the level of meetings with the European leaders, um, everybody should stay alert in order not to admit the, uh, the developments that would harm Ukraine's and the West interests. Yes, China is playing rather a, a Russian game here, although it it positions itself as a, as a big peacekeeper and peace negotiator. And uh, I think its logic in the global politics is to say, look, I want peace. I, I, sh- I know how to uh, reach peace deals between very different parties, like in the Middle East or in this Russia's war against Ukraine. But I agree with you that we all should be vigilant because even if we imagine this scenario that the, the, the war is frozen, that there is that Ukraine does not take all its territories which Russia occupied, for example, this summer, then there is a time for fatigue, then there is a time for kind of a a bit relaxation that people forget about the fact that this is a war and that there are Russian troops and nothing is happening. We have seen it in 2014-2015. And we have seen the consequences of this. So obviously Russia will use this time to prepare for a new offensive, for a new war, and to rely upon this decreased decreased amount of vigilance in among Ukrainian partners in in in, uh, in the in other parts of the world, but also probably in Ukraine itself. And I think our goal is not to let it let it happen. Thank you, Maxim, for this conversation. Uh, we had Maxim Panchenko, uh, expert and analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. This was our weekly overview of major events in and around Ukraine during the week from 29th of May until 5th of June. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. 
My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. In this episode, I talked to Maxim Panchenko, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World. We discussed seven key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.